I love films. And COVID has really pointed out to me how much I miss that big screen experience. First film I ever saw, Sound of Music. one of those big theaters that used to grace St. Catherine Street in Montreal. I remember standing in line with my parents and my older sister, Anna. The line snaked around the entire side of the theater and then around the back. I was so scared we wouldn't get in. But when we did, I couldn't believe the size of this theater. It's high roofs, these big burgundy drapes that fell from the ceiling, and chairs that as a small child, I felt absolutely lost in. I think my parents used their winter coats to prop us up. My sister and I crushed a bag of popcorn before the opening cartoon, and we both earned that look a parent gives when, you, when your straw hits bottom and turns into that big slurping machine. But then the lights went down, and that silver screen that seemed like, seemed like it was eternity came to life with such a wonderful story. And when that happens, nothing else seems to matter. You get swept away. Think of all the times in my life the film has made me laugh or cry, it's taught me, it's suspended belief, it's triggered my fight or flight syndrome. And great films, they're not only a reflection of society, they can help transform it. Hello? I'm guessing that isn't your brother. <laughs> this is? My name is Latika. Okay, Latika. Do you like apples? Yeah. Well, I got a number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> My guest today is Cameron Bailey. I can safely argue he's one of the most influential people in the movie industry around the world. He doesn't direct or act or write screenplays or produce or finance. What Cameron Bailey does, he's a curator and the CEO of the Toronto International Film Festival one of the most prestigious events of its kind in the world. And their mission? To transform the way people see the world through film. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Cameron Bailey, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. Happy to be here. So every time I've seen you, and I'm a huge TIFF subscriber, in been in many theaters, and where do I see is this guy showing up on stage, you rock a tuxedo like Daniel Craig, you've always articulate, you got personality and stuff, and I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about what you're doing with TIFF, but first, where did that love for film come from? Because when people ask you about film, you just light up. You know, it started as a love for stories. Uh, before I was into movies, I was into books, I was a big reader as a kid. I came here uh, to Canada as an immigrant when I was seven years old from Barbados, um, and I immediately gravitated towards the library, school library, public libraries. I spent my weekends sometimes just hanging out in libraries and discovering books, and I loved I you know all kinds of stories, detective stories. I read Agatha Christie, I read Sherlock Holmes, I read all of that, science fiction, all kinds of things. Um, didn't go to a lot of movies. When I was younger, I discovered film uh, in university, really, in a serious way. I went to Western University in London, Ontario, and um, uh, as an English literature major, because there, again, was my love of, of books and stories. Um, and I took one film course. 
Uh, it was called Contemporary Cinema, started in 1960 with Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless and went everywhere but Hollywood. So we saw uh, Latin American films and Asian films, European films, movies I just didn't know existed before. And that was what turned me on to movies. So before we get into Western and coming to Canada, because I want to talk to you about that pivotal time, but you talk about a lot of the roots of your career and who you are really happened as a student in a sort of what you call the one-room schoolhouse in St. James Barbados. Other than the ABCs, what did you learn there that you feel has been so instrumental in how you've sort of followed your path in life? I mean, I learned the basics. Um, it was a, as I said, a one-room elementary school, but at a very high standard. One thing I learned actually when I came to Canada is that the education I was getting in the fundamentals in Barbados was actually at a, at a more advanced level than what I landed in in grade three in Canada. And um, I enjoyed it. Uh, and it was a much more uh, a sort of open, um, sort of student-centered uh, world when I got to Canada. And I guess I had to get used to that. But I learned a lot by rote uh, in Barbados. It was based on the British system. Um, and so if anybody has been to school in that kind of system anywhere in the the, uh, the former British Empire, you'll know what that's like. There's a lot of drilling information into you. And at that level, when you're a younger kid, before you need to think more independently, that kind of worked. Age eight, you moved to Canada. I, I moved across town two years older than you, and I was lost. I left my friends behind. I mean, you're leaving a climate, a culture everything you know. And I found myself sort of diving into books as my way of filling time and feeling like I still belonged. What was it like for you to make that shift? Because, you know, we always talk about the immigrants that come and, and they're looking for something better for their family, but very often they're bringing kids of your age. What's it like to walk into Canada at that time? And how did you learn to cope? Well, it's scary. Uh, I'm not going to lie. And I think it's scary for every generation that comes. You, you start anywhere in a new country for the first time. You don't necessarily have a network of support. You don't have family members. You don't know the codes, right? You don't know what the kids are talking about in the schoolyard, uh, the jokes that are being made. Sometimes the, the, the teacher sounds funny to you because you're not, your ear's not used to that accent. Uh, remember, I'd already come from England. I was born in England, spent the first four years of my life there, then went to Barbados, had to develop an understanding of that culture there. Although it was my family's culture, I'd never lived in Barbados. And then I had to uproot myself and do that again in Canada. And I remember feeling isolated. I remember when school is let out for recess or for lunch, and you're just kind of looking around the yard, like, who am I going to talk to? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to talk to these kids. I don't know any of them. Thankfully, my mom was a nurse at North York General Hospital in Toronto, and she had some colleagues, one of whom had a, a son in my grade. And I remember that helped. I mean, he was at least somebody that my mom knew anyhow, and I could kind of reach out to him. We became friends. And eventually, you just, you know, kids figure it out for the most part. And you talk about your parents when they decided to leave Barbados. They were looking at England and Canada, and they thought that Canada had a more tolerant society, that it was more open to having people of different ethnicities and different points of view. Did that prove to be correct when they got here? Because I know Canada has this brand around the world, but a lot of people I talk to sometimes that say 
beneath the surface, there's still a lot of undercurrents. My mother left Barbados when she was 18 years old. She'd never lived anywhere else, never been anywhere else. It's a tiny island of only 300,000 people. She got on a, a ship and went to England. And, you know, this is part of the big colonial experiment. Uh, Barbados and many other countries around the world had been colonized by Britain and, and sort of raised to adore Britain. So she went there, met my father there, also from Barbados. At a certain point, they realized that England was not what it was promised to be. There was a lot of racism there. A lot of uh, British people did not want uh, immigrants in their country. There was a political party that ran a national campaign on getting black people out of Britain. And it was at that point that my mother and father both thought, we need to leave this place and we're not welcome. Uh, believe it or not, my father actually was thinking of Sweden uh, as the place to move to. So I guess I could have grown up Swedish, but, but in the end, uh, the idea of an English-speaking country made a little bit more sense. Um, so they eventually moved to Canada. They actually split up in the process, but my sister and I spent four years in Barbados while they were getting themselves settled here. And when we got here... Canada did not strike me as an especially welcoming place, I have to say. I remember my first uh, school teacher in grade three at the time, um, who didn't have a lot of patience for kids who were newcomers and who were learning uh, things. I certainly got chased around the schoolyard and called racist names. There was a lot of, of race, just casual racism uh, pretty frequently. Things that people get very outraged about now were kind of daily occurrences, I have to say. Um, so it wasn't everything that was promised, uh, but there were always, you know, great people that you would meet, teachers, fellow students, other people who you could uh, gravitate towards. Uh, you find your community and, and that is what I was able to do. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. The entire film industry has been transformed, I think, over the past few years by just the, the, the rise in conversations about representation. What does it mean to watch movies and to talk about movies when entire segments of society are just absent or erased, right? We can't have that anymore. My special guest is Cameron Bailey. If you're a film buff, you know his name. If you've been to TIFF, you know his presence. And they're on a mission, and their mission is to transform the way people see the world through film. We're going to talk about that. Cameron, before joining TIFF, you talked a little bit about Western taking this English literature course, taking some film. How did that all morph into the sense that when you graduate, film becomes something that you are, that empowers you. You want to write about it. You want to educate people about it. I mean, I've read some of your old reviews and for a young kid, you're bringing a lot of perspective to the film. You're not just talking about the frills. You're trying to get people to go beneath it. I think that's probably one of the reasons why Now Magazine just was so excited about it because it was fresh. I'm glad I discovered film when I did because, you know, we didn't go out to, to movies a lot. It was an expense that, you know, my family really didn't have the money for a lot of the time, but we watched movies on TV. And, you know, I, I remember enjoying them, but it really wasn't until I took that course at Western University and then subsequent courses as well and began reading more about film that I understood that movies can do so much more than just entertain. And it was when I saw films by filmmakers, uh, whether Jean-Luc Godard or Agnes Varda or Jibril Diop Membetti, a filmmaker from Senegal, that I realized that films could express sort of profound uh, observations about us as human beings and about the world we live in and about our history and our future, uh, that it could do everything that literature did. It could do everything that the greatest music or art 
could do as well. And it wasn't just a kind of a, an entertainment, a diversion. And I guess that's what got me into film because I think for me, film did have a transformative power. I did find myself taken to other worlds that I would eventually get to visit, but I, I discovered them for the first time through movies. You know, I discovered what it was like, you know, in the, uh, the, the cities of, of Brazil or in, uh, Tokyo or in the desert in the Middle East and, not just through kind of Hollywood versions of those places, because of course, you know, we see all of those places in Hollywood movies and they're usually done on sound stages, but these were films that were set in those places, cast with actors from those places, the storytellers were from there, and it just made all the difference. It made the it opened up the world to me. What do you think of this sort of I think this great tension point where you have people trying to desperately hold on to power that use film for propaganda? And to try to sort of wash over society. And then you have sort of the anarchy and revolutionaries that use film as a way of connecting with people and, and try to expressing their thought. I mean, is that not one of the most interesting things about film is it can be such, it's so transformative that a way to get people swept into a story, a message, a cause? Movies are an incredibly persuasive medium, it, sometimes dangerously persuasive, uh, in that, yes, movies can be used for propaganda, have been. Uh, Hitler and the Nazis used uh, the films of Leni Riefenstahl to uh, promote the Nazi ideology. And she was a great filmmaker, technically, but she used her skills towards some pretty dangerous ends. But film can also persuade uh, towards uh, maybe, let's say, higher values as well. Film, because it's a, it, it reaches you on an emotional, visceral level, because we respond primarily emotionally. And because, you know, for most of the history of movies, we responded together as a group. That's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, and a film can... Uh, through the course of telling a story and allowing people to respond emotionally together and sharing that emotion, which then becomes amplified, that can be incredibly powerful. Uh, we just recently saw the passing of Sidney Poitier. And Sidney Poitier uh, was one of uh, the actors in Hollywood who understood that persuasive power of film. And he chose his roles and he chose the scripts because he wanted to help make some change in society. And so when you see a film like In the Heat of the Night, directed by Canadian Norman Jewison, you can imagine watching that in a packed movie theater with hundreds of other people. And when those big moments happen emotionally on screen, you can imagine everybody, you know, feeling that same shock, that same surprise, and then almost wanting to cheer at the end of it. That collective response is what movies can do at their best eliciting a response that that actually appeals to our higher uh, values and principles as opposed to our baser ones. Um, but movies have that power. So you're not only you know writing, and it's not just Now Magazine, CBC, CDV, everybody wants to have your opinion, but you decide to actually step into the game. You become a screenwriter, your first screenplay, Planet of Junior Brown, named Best Picture at the 1998 Urban Wood Film Festival in New York, nominated for a Best Screenplay Gemini Award, why didn't you just keep doing that? I'm curious because to have that initial success, I mean, and, and recognize that you knew how to put words that move people, I'm surprised that that suddenly wasn't a career path you followed. You know, I'm glad I did it. And I, I had a kind of a craving to write uh, screenplays at the time. I, I, I co-wrote that with Clement Virgo, who's gone on to great work as a filmmaker and director and producer of television as well. But at the end of the process, I realized 
this was maybe not my calling. You know, I understand how hard it is to write a great screenplay. And the fact that the, the script always has to be in service of the, the, the final film or, or television show, kind of a blueprint uh, for whatever's going to be built after that. So it's like a recipe you're giving to a chef, but the chef's going to turn it into whatever they want. Exactly. That's a great analogy. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing I think that was important to understand is what filmmakers and what screenwriters go through. Um, as a film critic and as a film programmer, I'm dealing with a finished work and I'm presenting it or I'm analyzing it or I'm, you know, taking it to an audience, but the work is already there. As a creator of film, you're starting with nothing a blank page, a blank screen, and you have to just will something into life, into existence. It's amazing how many actors and on your stage at TIFF has said, I'm here because of the words of the writer. That's true. They're the ones that provide me the gift to do what you saw you know, during the film that just played. You are so right. It's a lonely business writing, whether you're writing a novel or a poem or a screenplay or a play for the stage. Uh, you do it on your own. Uh, you spend a lot of time in your own head figuring out your characters and your story, and then the actors bring that to life, but they have nothing to work with until the writer does his or her work. So you move then to the next fork in the road, which is this curation. And I really, I'm a huge fan of curators. Your specialty is film, and it wasn't not just TIFF, but you've worked with National Film Board of Canada, Audrey's Australia, Sydney International Film Festival. When did you decide that that would be one of the major callings of your life is your ability to, and I mean, this, we're drowning in content, to choose the pieces that would create a festival, that would create essence as opposed to just being, you know, a, a male cat spraying randomly across the wall? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just found at a certain point that I loved it. I, I don't know exactly what the first thing was, but I, you know, I go back to things like, do you remember making mixtapes, you know, back in the, the, the cassette tape era when, you know, if you're into music, you'd spend a lot of time with your little tape deck and your turntable creating a list of music and it would have a beginning and middle and an end and each song would connect to each other. And it was an expression of yourself and your own creativity. And it, you know, the songs were there, but when you combine them in new ways, you create something brand new. And curating film is like that. Putting a film festival together is like that. Choosing the films, putting them in conversation with one another, understanding how they're going to be received by the audience, and thinking about that as you put them together. I just love that. It appeals, I think, both to the sort of the, the sort of technical side of my mind in terms of how things fit together, um, almost like an architect builds a building, but also to just the pure creative side. Just one of the, you know, has attracts so many different people. Are you ever frustrated as a curator who's put this gift together that there's people that are just voyeurs or just hoping to catch a, a glimpse of somebody, maybe watch a film, go go back on social media and say I was there versus the other people that might realize that there was a theme to this. I feel like we always have to take people where they are, find them where they are and give them the room to to grow from there, right? So many people come to the Toronto Film Festival every year for just that celebrity moment. That is an exciting experience, and and we celebrate that. I, I have nothing against that. I actually love it. But if you can take that person from the experience they've just been through, that high, and then say, you know, this actor that you love from this, you know, maybe they were in a franchise movie or something, and they're in an independent movie at our festival, They've also done this other incredible work. If people start with just, I'm excited that Brad Pitt's here, you know, that's okay. Because there's a, there's a long path that you can take from there to something deeper. We come back, Cameron Bailey joins TIFF. First as a programmer and a co-director. Today he's the CEO. 
but he develops a reputation for identifying films that win significant awards. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. RBC is a big supporter of Canada's art community, and they believe in the power of creative ideas to invoke powerful stories. Working alongside TIFF, RBC is helping to fund and champion films that celebrate women filmmakers, the arts, and small business. Culture matters to RBC. Every time people show up with any kind of interest, that's an opportunity for them and for us, I think. One thing that we will never run out of is human curiosity. And not everybody's curious about the same things, but nearly everybody has some form of curiosity. And our job is to find where that connects with what we do. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Cameron Bailey, the CEO of the Toronto Film Festival. He's considered by many in the know to have one of the most astute eyes for choosing films, and they're not all made in Hollywood. Cameron, when did you join TIFF? How long ago was that? I joined first as a programmer working just in the summer and fall in 1990. You're known for this Planet Africa section. And I go back to your original talk about, you know, different countries coming, uh, this the whole world and how people see them. I actually read a great article about talking about, you know, if you're an immigrant diving in and being part of the culture, well, you're now bringing Africa, the culture to the people. What was your thinking initially on that? Because that has become, and that is considered one of the best demonstrations of curating film out there. So I started TIFF in 1990. I was hired by Piers Handling, our former CEO. I wasn't CEO at the time, but he, he became CEO and was a mentor for me. We traveled together to Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso. That's the city that's the capital of Burkina Faso in West Africa in 1991. And I remember we landed and it was one of those airports where when the plane stops, they run a, a ladder up to the uh, series of steps up to the plane and you go down, the door opens and you feel this blast of hot, dry air because this cities on the edge of the Sahel Desert. And you feel, wow, we are in Africa now. And we spent over a week there uh, watching African cinema. Uh, it was a big African film festival called Fispaco there. We met African filmmakers. And I just fell in love with the whole world of African film, that these were films that were often made on minuscule budgets compared to Hollywood, with you know not big stars compared to Hollywood, uh, but were telling incredibly powerful stories and finding ways to bring traditional African forms of storytelling into this 20th century art form cinema. And I loved it. And that was, that was the, the seed of Planet Africa. Uh, and in 1995, uh, after many conversations with peers and others, we started that program at the Toronto Film Festival. And every year we would bring together films from the African continent with films from the African diaspora as well. So it wasn't just, you know, Mali and Senegal and Nigeria and other places. It was also films from Jamaica or black filmmakers from uh, South America or Britain or the US or other places as well. Anywhere there was a kind of a, an African cultural tradition, an African storytelling tradition, we would find those films, bring them together. And it was a way of developing an audience for those films in Toronto as well. How open, because I have to believe that back then, when you were looking at the board of TIFF and most of the people working at TIFF, it'd be quite white bread. It'd be very white. It would be very Toronto established. 
how did you manage then to convince them that this was the right thing to do to start really bringing this tapestry of film and culture from around the world to Toronto? And look, not everybody got what we were trying to do. I was working alongside uh, my sister, who was involved with TIFF, Maxine Bailey at the time. She's now running the Canadian Film Centre. Um, and other people, uh, Karen Carter, Karen Terrell, many others who were uh, helping sort of build the Planet Africa moment during the festival. And it was meant to be something that was kind of like black-led within the festival and, and kind of unapologetic about that. We're now living in an age of, you know, Beyonce and, uh, and you know, the, the Raptors and, and all kinds of elements of black pop culture are much more visible and present in, uh, in Canada and in North America than they used to be. Uh, but this was something that we felt was important. We had to have some conversations. Not everybody was, was, was on board at first, but I think people saw the success of it. In the years since it ended, you know, a year doesn't go by that I don't hear people saying you have to bring that back. <laughs> so clearly it had an impact. So 40 years ago, TIFF begins and it's really a, back then it was the festival for greatest hits. You know, it wasn't, it didn't have its own identity. It was just trying to get into it. Today, it's arguably the preeminent place for filmmakers to premiere their work. What role did you think you played in that? Oh man, that is a great question. I mean, I will say there are many, many, many people, hundreds of people who've contributed, maybe thousands of people overall, who've contributed to making TIFF what it is uh, today. And many leaders, starting with our founders uh, back in 1976, but then also people like Wayne Clarkson and Helga Stephenson and Piers Handling and Michelle Mayhew, Noah Cowan, so many others um, who, who were part of leading what TIFF became. Where I came in, I was building on what TIFF had already built by the time we got to the 1990s. TIFF was becoming not just a festival, but a year-round organization as well. We took on uh, the Cinematheque, art house films all year round uh, that same year, 1990, film reference library, other things. So my job, I think, when I first came in, and especially when I came on full-time in 2008, was to keep that tradition going. Maybe some of the things that I, I think I contributed uh, were one, first of all, Planet Africa, which did become a kind of a, a signature part of, of TIFF over the years. Certainly did everything I could to keep the international strength of the festival. I, I started traveling a lot once I took on the role of, of co-director of the festival. And so bringing in films, for instance, from South Asia, from India in particular, was something that I put a lot of uh, focus in. I spent a lot of time in Mumbai and other cities in India watching movies, building relationships with the film industry there so that we could bring in some of the biggest stars in the world, people like Shah Rukh Khan and Amitabh Bachchan to our festival. And the audiences here went crazy. Someone that I was talking to said, Cameron Bailey picks winners. Now, Slumdog Millionaire, from what I understand, was heading to, right to DVD. They weren't even thinking about That's right. And it ends up winning eight out of 10 Academy Awards or some crazy amount of uh, awards. How do you go about picking what somebody that's living the film, producing the film, saying, you know what, we're better to monetize this going to DVD, and you see something that might they might not even see? You know, that that's a fascinating and probably unique example because that film was a little bit of a an orphan at a certain point it was um, made by one company warner independent and then that company was going out of, out of business and that uh, branch was being folded uh, searchlight was picking it up fox searchlight nobody knew exactly what to do with it it didn't have any name stars in it it was shot 
and set in India. Uh, and this was a Hollywood movie, which they almost never did that. There was a lot that wasn't in the English language. It was in Hindi instead. And I think people just felt like this is very niche. It's only, there's only a tiny sliver of people that will be interested in, in seeing it, and we'll, we'll get it to them on DVD. Well, how wrong they were. And the Oscar goes to Slumdog Millionaire Christian Coulson producer. You know, everybody wanted to see Slumdog Millionaire. But you only know that when you show it to an audience en masse. And that's what we were able to do at the Toronto Film Festival that year, was to bring in uh, Danny Boyle, the director, and the stars, uh, Dev Patel and Frida Pinto, and um, just watch the reaction. The film went on to win our People's Choice Award for the most popular film in the whole festival, and it just went from there. One of the currents that's running through this. So one of the core words is gatherings. You know, you talk about sometimes I'm sitting watching this, but when people gather together, even earlier you mentioned there's nothing like the audience moving in unison. COVID hits. I don't spend a lot of time on COVID, but there's no more gatherings. It would have been easy just to put the festival on hold. I imagine there was a lot of discussions at the board level, but you've managed to keep the momentum. Well, I think what we tried to do beginning in 2020 is figure out what is the essence of what TIFF does. We can't do the festival like we usually would do. What is the essence that we can still capture and deliver in other ways? Although gatherings is usually how we would generate that excitement and that collective emotion, there are other ways to do that. You can gather at a drive-in. Many people had never been to a drive-in because it was only the, really the older generation for the most part who would have had access. And so we made that more of an event. We made it exciting. And, and you know, when, when people saw the stage parties come out uh, to introduce the movie, the actors and the directors, they would start honking their horns and flashing their lights. And you develop some kind of collective emotional response. And then we did it online as well. We had one of the biggest uh, years in terms of just social media response because people were talking to each other about their festival experiences on Twitter, on Facebook, on other social media platforms. We were able to deliver some of that same excitement, but do it in different ways because that's all we could do. What are you going to take from the COVID experience? Let's fast forward and hope finally we're going to get rid of this pandemic. Everybody's back. Did anything happen within that environment from people honking in their cars to the online to social media so people felt they were engaged? Any of this you're going to bring with you? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of it um, because, you know, when the pandemic's over, there will be some things that just don't change from our pandemic behavior. We've all spent a lot of time at home, more time than we've and maybe imagined we ever would. And there's so much that we can entertain ourselves with at home. And so even post-COVID, we need to understand how we deliver uh, films to people at home, how we engage people on their mobile phones, because everybody's spending a lot of time on their phones as well. Um, we need to understand uh, how the in-person experience connects to the digital experience that we're all doing so much more of. Um, how business is done in the film industry is changing as well. It's a global industry. Um, not everybody's going to rack up the same number of air miles that they used to. So how do we do it when people are in person and when they're not in person? Uh, and how do we maintain that activity? A lot of sales are done. Uh, tens of millions of dollars worth of business is done at our festival every year. We want to continue that. So there, there are things that will continue. I think that the digital aspect of it is a key part of it. Understanding how audience behavior changes is a key part of it. 
But then I think we have to never forget that 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 kind of electricity that comes with being the first people to see something new and to see it with the people who made it in the room, that's something that we should always protect and we're always going to want to deliver that for the Toronto audience. Thank you so much to the Academy. As, as you can see, our film was um, a collaboration between uh, hundreds of people. Together we've been on uh, an extraordinary, an extraordinary journey. Uh, when we started out, uh, we had no stars, we had no power or muscle, we didn't have enough money really to do what we wanted to do. Uh, but what we had was a script that inspired mad love uh, in everyone who read it. We had a genius for a director, we had a cast and a crew who were unwavering in their commitment and whose talents uh, are up on the screen for all of you to see. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest is Cameron Bailey. I could easily argue one of the most influential people globally in the film sector. If you ask him, he's going to talk about all the thousands of other people who do great work. But, but he is definitely a force and a positive force. You know, this mission of transforming how people see the world through film, we, we've talked a little bit about it, but you're also taking that mission. You're teaching, uh, for example, a film course. You're mentoring people. How do you find the time and what are the lessons you try to bring to people in the classroom that will impact them the way you were impacted by being in that one, one room uh, school room in, uh, in Barbados as a kid? I know I'm, I'm just one person. Um, I try to, to open up space, to open doors for others as often as I can. I try to make time to just to listen to what other people are going through as they're trying to make their way in the film industry and in the film world and to help wherever I can. Um, I try to make sure that we as an organization are as inclusive as possible of all kinds of perspective and backgrounds and points of view, because that makes us stronger and it allows people to feel like they have access to who we are and what we do. And, and, and that's all very important to me. So we both have share a sponsor in common. So RBC is my presenting sponsor of the podcast and RBC is very involved in TIFF. How do you work with your partners? Because people will come to the table with their marketing dollars or their sponsorship dollars. Maybe they just want to be attached to something as special as TIFF. How do you find a way to create a relationship with them in a way that the audience wins, the essence of the festival wins, and the brand that's putting the money in wins versus one trying to win over the others. You know, we're very fortunate in the partners we have, including RBC. They've been with us for many, many years. And um, we also, of course, had um, Jennifer Torrey, a former RBC executive, as our board chair for many years. She's just our recently outgoing chair, and she was great um, on both levels. You know, I think what we have to always do is understand uh, what the common goals are. What I've learned over the years in my time at TIFF is that, you know, the days of sponsors simply wanting to put their name or their logo on something, those are long gone. Um, that's the most basic form of sponsorship. But partnerships are really about bigger things now. They're about where do you find common values? How do you engage people uh, in a way that suits us as a not-for-profit arts organization, that suits what our partners may be wanting to do? And, and when you find that common ground, then you really work it. 
RBC is very interested in uh, emerging artistic talent and has many programs well beyond TIF uh, to try to support that across Canada. Uh, well, we're interested in emerging artistic talent in film, and so we find common ground there. You know, Mary DePauli, who we both know and think so highly of, talked about, you know, when she got involved and she saw how few women were in film. And she said that one of the things that RBC wanted to bring was really champion more women in film. Uh, in 2017, TIFF started an initiative called Share Her Journey, which was actually started by Maxine Bailey, who was uh, the head of advancement at that point. And this was an initiative to open doors for women in the film industry, to increase training opportunities, mentorship, advance the uh, the careers of women storytellers on on screen. We've been able to work with uh, many, many women uh, screenwriters, directors, producers uh, since then. It's the kind of initiative that lines up entirely with, with what Mary and RBC are wanting to do. I have to ask this on behalf of my nieces, who I see creating content daily on TikTok and, and wonderful content, you know, music and animation and stuff. Is part of TIFF down the road to also to go that far into society, that citizen created content and say that one day you're going to be bringing that to the surface as well? You know, I love what kids are doing. I have a 12-year-old myself and just kind of walking down the street or sitting in the back of a car, he can create a little video piece, you know, edit it, add effects, add text, all that kind of stuff. It's it's like second nature to them now. It's amazing. Um, and it requires a sort of visual literacy that they're not even always conscious that they have. I think we can tap into that as a moving image organization. We can draw that out. We can get allow people to go deeper with it. I know a lot of people are wondering when, if you're ever going to enter politics. I'm not going to ask you that what? question. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious what's next for Cameron Bailey. I mean, you're, you're really, you know, at the prime of your craft, you're really understanding the world's changing and you're at the epicenter. Is there still Mumbai's to travel to that you haven't discovered that kind of create your curiosity? Is there other ways to shape this festival going forward that the TIFF is not just known as this extravaganza, but it really truly is transformative? Oh, there are so many things. Yes, I want to get back to the great film capitals of the world, whether that's Mumbai or Tokyo or Paris or other places where, where great films being made. Uh, many places I haven't been to yet uh, that I want to travel to and bring those films back to Toronto. Uh, we've got this beautiful home in downtown Toronto, Tiff Bell Lightbox, and we want to revitalize it. It's, it's entering its second decade now. There's a lot more we can do to make it a real cultural hub. And we want to reach people all across Canada. And our digital platform, Digital Tip at Livebox, has started, but there's a, a lot more growth that I'm, I, I want to see from, uh, from TIFF as well. So there's, there's so much to do. And, uh, we're continuing a lot of that, uh, during the shutdown, uh, in COVID. But once, uh, that's over, just watch. So Cameron, I always end my, my podcast with the lessons I've learned and my takeaways, things I'll talk about, think about. And the first one is just really how important gatherings are to you. Your love for travel and seeing society and how they gather together and how they capture these stories on film 
and then bringing it back so that other people can gather together. I think it's just a remarkable journey for you. And it's remarkable for all of us because I've sat in those theaters. And now, you know, now I'm going to realize that I'm going to take it one step further. Like I start thinking about my cup of coffee that where, where Farmer came from and where they treated fairly. I'm going to think about you in that theater somewhere in the world and looking at this film because I think it's just going to mean that much more. I think the second thing is just how much advancing our openness to a diverse culture matters to you. And I, I, I don't know if it's because you were a bit of a pinball earlier on between England, Barbados, Canada. I don't know if it's chasing around the schoolyard or the teacher that refused to uh, acknowledge uh, people of color or, or new people to the country, but you're changing that for the better. You're changing it with positivity. You're changing it with by showing films and letting people applaud Slumdog Millionaire and, re and realize that story happens across the world. I mean, that I think that's a wonderful thing. And the last thing I want to take away, and it's so different than the James Bond guy in the tuxedo I see on the stage, is your humility. I can never put you in a corner and ask you to take credit for anything. And yet the people I talk around, you talk about what an incredible positive force you've been for TIFF, how much you've done, how much you've brought some great change. And yet you're just saying, almost I'm a caretaker, something that was created before, it's something that will go afterwards. And I think that humility is the thing I take away the most because I find in the best leaders, the ones that look for the middle ground, the ones that are generous, the ones that are open to other people's opinions, it begins with humility. For all of that, Cameron Bailey, I thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. It's been a great conversation, Tony. Thank you so much. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.